0: It's that time again. With stories of Christmases present and past. Poems and carols and jokes unsurpassed. Festive
1: collection of love and good cheer. In Worcester's Talking Magazine, Look Look here. Here. I'm Pippa Curtis. And I'm Stephen Buckley. And with us for this Christmas edition of Look Here are Barney Burnham. Hello. Christine Buckley. Hello. Evelyn Brock. Hello.
0: Catherine Neal. Hello. Phil Lee. Hello. And Jane Fair,
1: Hello. And with his team of little helpers and a sack full of side-splitting cracker jokes, here's Barry Hurd. Hello. Right. What
2: can go up a chimney down but cannot go down a chimney
0: up? A small, a small, a small boy. Can I go down the chimney up?
2: No, can't think. Oh, well, okay. Uh, perhaps we should leave that to give you time to think about it. Yeah. yeah. Here's another. What has a wide bottom, a narrow top, and ears?
1: Wide bottom
2: ears.
0: A jerk? Uh,
3: oh, an overweight rabbit. Uh, so,
0: so what has a wide bottom, a narrow top, and ears?
3: A
2: mountain. Ears.
0: A mountain.
4: A mountain? Yeah, mountaineers. <laughs> oh, Haven't
0: you heard mountaineers. of mountaineers? <laughs> oh,
5: <sorry>. good <laughs> grief.
0: Oh, that's awful. There are some appalling puns in this magazine. Phil has been given full reign here.
6: The Christmas many of us know today is largely an invention of the 1800s and in general we can identify the key figures in that development. Prince Albert, Charles Dickens, Roland Hill, who started the modern postal service and who, incidentally, was born in Kidderminster. They account for much of the Christmassy stuff, like trees, fireside jollity and Christmas cards. But what, I hear you ask, what about that most important festive ingredient, reindeer? Let me introduce you without delay to the American Clement Clarke Moore, who probably wrote the 1824 poem A Visit from St Nicholas, which begins, "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. He it was who took the Dutch tradition to be found in parts of New York City, previously New Amsterdam, and brought those crucial reindeer to wider attention. He wrote, When what to my wondering eyes did appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer? Santa whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. On Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen. We think he altered the names a little for better rhyming. Blitzen had been Blixem, for instance, in the original Dutch folklore. And they were all given two syllables each. Those names have survived ever since. Back to the poem. Their job finished, the presents bestowed. Santa sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. It's a lovely line, isn't it? Now, dear listener, especially you steeped in the Christmas tradition, there's a mystery here. Eight tiny reindeer? Where's number nine, whose nose so bright illuminated Santa's journey? Where, in short, is Rudolph? Rudolph didn't appear on the scene until 1939 in a booklet written by one Robert L. May for the US department store Montgomery Ward as part of their promotional Christmas material. Incidentally, May was going to call him Reginald, so there's a near miss. May's brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, who also penned Rocking Around the Christmas Tree, adapted this Rudolph story into the famous song, and Gene Autry took it to number one in America in the week of Christmas 1949. Reindeer themselves, of course, are real enough. Spoiler alert, they can't fly. However, they can swim at a speed which would match an Olympic swimmer and, immediately after birth, they can run at professional sprinter speeds. Some certainly do have red noses too. One very arresting fact brings us to gender. Now, we all know that Santa's reindeers have antlers, agreed? Now, both male and female reindeer grow antlers, but, pay attention here, the males shed theirs at the beginning of December. That being so and I sent you ahead of me here, Santa's reindeers must all be female. Females doing all the hard work at Christmas, who would have known? We finished with a dreadful pun. It seems that some, listening to that song of 1949, thought there were ten reindeer on the sleigh. The tenth? Olive, of course. Rather a nasty reindeer, as in the line, Olive, the other reindeer, used to laugh and call him names. Donna und Blitzen.
1: You were warned about the puns. (laughs) There are no puns in this next piece, but it does have an interesting twist and it comes from an unusual source. In 1983, the governor of Long Lartin Prison near Evesham published a collection of poems by inmates of the prison under the title Images from Within. Apart from giving expression to the inmates' latent literary talents, the book also provided a means of raising funds for the Summerfield School for Children with Impaired Hearing at Malvern. The inmate who wrote this Christmas poem had a nice imagination. Catherine.
7: My dad thinks that I don't know, but I found out long ago. Every year it's the same old game. He creeps about under another name. Each year I try to stay awake, and many traps I devise and make... One year I tied a string to my toe to trip him up on the way he would go. But he was more clever than I thought, and that Christmas was not caught. This year I've got one for him, two pounds of flour in a tin. On the door it balances steady to tip and spill when it is ready. I fall asleep as I always do, but wake with a start round about two. There are clouds of white all about and footsteps leading out. My bag of toys lies by the door and the scatter all across the floor. I follow the footsteps to mum and dad's room. I listen to my dad's voice, boom. Wake up, mother, and look and see what the little devil has done to me. My mum woke up and said, Oh dear, what he's done is really quite clear. I would like to have seen my dad standing there with all that flour in his hair but I crept away and went to bed. The next day, nothing was said, but I knew I'd broken all the laws and proved my dad was Santa Claus. What I told you is quite true. I think I must explain to you. You see, my father is that very man who on Christmas Eve visits all he can. I hope you always get what you desire, for one day he must retire, then I must take over his wonderful work. I just hope that my son won't lurk. What did Santa do
2: when he went speed dating?
8: Oh, he pulled a cracker. Why
2: Why? why was the snowman looking through the carrots?
1: He was picking his nose. <laughs> <These> are... <laughs> the carol, Jesus a Hat on Yar, was originally written in sixteen forty two by the missionary Jean de Brabeuf in the language known as Wendat, the tongue of the native Huron people of Canada. It tells the traditional Christmas story but uses imagery familiar to the Hurons, and includes the phrase Jesus Ahat On ya," which means Jesus is born.
9: Jane It was in the moon of winter time, when all the birds had fled. That mighty Gitche Manitou sent angel choirs instead. Before their lights the stars grew dim, and wandering hunters heard the hymn, Iezus Ahat Within a lodge of broken bark, the tender babe was found. A ragged robe of rabbit skin enwrapped his beauty round. But as the hunter brave drew nigh, the angel song rang loud and high, Iesus, a hat on ya. The earliest moon of winter time is not so round and fair, as was the ring of glory on the helpless infant there. The chiefs from far before him knelt with gifts of fox and beaver pelt, Iesus, a hat on ya. O oh, children of the forest, free! O oh, sons of Manitou, the holy child of earth and heaven is born today for you. Come kneel before the radiant boy who brings you beauty, peace, and joy. Jesus, our Jesus, your king is born.
0: The Christmas story seen through different eyes. That same story is the theme upon which most British school nativity plays are also based, but sometimes with variations more inventive than those found in even the Huron version. Gervais Finn tells us of a nativity he visited in Yorkshire, Evelyn.
10: At one little primary school deep in the Dales, I attended an unforgettable nativity play, which was improvised by the children. This is not always a good idea, because small children can be very unpredictable, particularly when faced with an appreciative audience. Mary, a pretty little thing of about six or seven, was busy bustling about the stage, wiping and dusting. When the angel of the Lord appeared stage right... The heavenly spirit was a tall, self-conscious boy, with a plain, pale face and sticky-out ears. He was dressed in a flowing white robe, large paper wings, and sported a tinsel halo, somewhat crooked. Having wiped his nose on his sleeve, he glanced round suspiciously, then sidled up to Mary as a dodgy market trader might, to see if you were interested in buying something from under the counter. "'Who are you?' Mary asked sharply, putting down her duster and placing her hands on her hips. "'This was not the quietly-spoken, gentle-natured Mary I was used to.' "'I'm the angel Gabriel,' the boy replied.' with a deadpan expression and a flat voice. Well, what do you want? Are you Mary? Yes. I come with tidings of great joy. What? I've got some good news. What is it? You're having a baby. I'm not. You are... Who says? God. And he sent me to tell you. Well, I don't know nothing about this. And it will be a boy, and he will become great and be called... uh, The boy stalled for a moment. Ah, called Son of the Most High, King of Kings. He will rule forever and his reign will have no end. What if it's a girl? It won't be. You don't know, it might be. It won't, because God knows about these things. Oh. And you must call it Jesus. I don't like the name Jesus. Can I call him something else? No. What about Gavin? No, the angel snapped. You have to call it Jesus, otherwise you don't get it. All right then, Mary agreed. And look after it. I don't know what I'm going to tell Joseph, the little girl said, putting on a worried expression and picking up her duster. Tell him it's God's. OK, Mary said, smiling for the first time. When the angel of the Lord had departed, Joseph entered. He was a cheeky-faced little boy, dressed in a brown woolen dressing gown, thick blue socks, and a multicoloured towel over his head, held in place by the inevitable elastic belt with a snake clasp. ''Hello, Mary,'' he said cheerfully. ''Oh, hello, Joseph.'' Mary replied. Have you had a good day? Yes, pretty good, really, she told him, nodding theatrically. Have you anything to tell me? There was a slight pause before she replied. I'm having a baby. Oh, and it's not yours. (laughs) OK?
1: Seven going on seventeen. Written specially for children at the lower end of that range were the books by American author, poet and filmmaker Theodore Geisel. Writing under the name Dr. Seuss, he produced over 60 books for children, selling more than 600 million copies over a period of 50 years or so. One of Seuss's characters was the Grinch, a misanthropic, mean-spirited creature whose heart was, he wrote, two sizes too small.'" and is the central character in How the Grinch Stole Christmas, a moral tale with echoes of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Just like Scrooge, the Grinch hates Christmas and does his best to ruin the day for the inhabitants of Whoville by creeping round the town on Christmas Eve dressed as Santa Claus and removing all the seasonal trappings from each house in turn.
0: This is stop number one, the old Grinchy Claus hissed, and he climbed to the roof, empty bags in his fist. Then he slid down the chimney, a rather tight pinch, but if Santa could do it, then so could the Grinch. He got stuck only once for a moment or two. Then he stuck his head out of the fireplace flue where the little hoo's dockings all hung in a row. These stockings, he grinned, are the first things to go. Then he slithered and slunk with a smile most unpleasant around the whole room and he took every present. Pop guns and bicycles, roller skates, drums, checkerboards, tricycles, popcorn and plums and he stuffed them in bags and then the Grinch, very nimbly stuffed all the bags, one by one up the chimney then he slunk to the icebox he took the Who's feast he took the Who pudding he took the roast beast then he went up the chimney himself the old liar on their walls he left nothing but hooks and some wire and the one speck of food that he left in the house was a crumb that was even too small for a mouse. Then he did the same thing to the other who's houses, leaving crumbs much too small for the other who's mouses. It was quarter past dawn, all the who's still abed. all the who's still a snooze, when he packed up his sled, packed it up with their presents... The ribbons, the wrappings, the tags and the tinsel, the trimmings, the trappings. 3,000 feet up, up the side of Mount Crumpet, he rode with his load to the tip-top to dump it. Poo-poo to the hoos, he was grinchishly humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the Who's down in Whoville will all cry, Boo-hoo! That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put his hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, then it started to grow. But the sound wasn't sad. Why? This sound sounded merry. It couldn't be so, but it was merry, very. He stared down at Hooville. The Grinch popped his eyes. Then he shook. What he saw was a shocking surprise. Every who down in Hooville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presents at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice-cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes or bags. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. And what happened then? Well, in Hooville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And the minute his heart didn't feel quite so tight, he whizzed with his load through the bright morning light and he brought back the toys and the food for the feast. And he, he himself, the Grinch, carved the roast beast.
1: Incidentally, the name Seuss, Geisel's mother's maiden name, should ideally be given the German pronunciation that his family background would suggest. One of his collaborators, Alexander Lang, wrote a helpful verse. You're wrong as the deuce, and you shouldn't rejoice. If you're calling him Seuss, he pronounces it Seuss. He did adopt the pronunciation Seuss, however... As it evoked a character possibly advantageous for an author of children's books to be associated with Mother Goose. Seuss's books were translated into more than 20 languages, but not Chinese. In China, only one person in a hundred is Christian, so most people only know a few things about Christmas. Because of this, it is often only celebrated in major cities. But in these big cities, there are Christmas trees, lights and other decorations in the streets and in department stores. Postmen often dress up as Santa when delivering letters over Christmas. More young people are celebrating the festival in cities where Christmas parties are becoming popular. And it's also a time when young couples give gifts to each other, a bit like Valentine's Day. In Chinese, Happy Christmas is Shengdang Kui Li in Mandarin, and Sendan an Lok in Cantonese. Only a few people have a Christmas tree. If people do have a tree, it is normally a plastic one and might be decorated with paper chains, paper flowers and paper lanterns. They might also call it a tree of light. The Christmas trees that most people see will be in shopping malls. The strange thing is that most of the world's plastic Christmas trees and Christmas decorations are made in China but people making them might not have decorations like them in their own homes at Christmas. A tradition that's become popular on Christmas Eve is giving apples. Many stores have apples wrapped up in coloured paper for sale. People give apples on Christmas Eve because in Chinese Christmas Eve is called ping an yi, meaning peaceful or quiet evening, which has been translated from the carol Silent Night. The word for apple in Mandarin is pingguo, which sounds like the word for peace. Some people go carol singing, although not many people understand them or know about the Christmas story. As you might expect, the most popular Christmas song in China is not a Christian carol, but Jingle Bells. Santa Claus is called shendan lauren, which means Old Christmas Man and has grottos in shops, as he does in the West. Another figure from the West to infiltrate the Orient is our own Pam Ayres, whose words have been translated into Chinese and are now to be found in the school textbooks of China and Singapore. Here's her view of Christmas. Christine.
4: It was Christmas Eve on a Friday. The shops was full of cheer with tinsel in the windows and presents twice as dear. A thousand father Christmases sat in their little huts, and folk was buying crackers and folk was buying nuts. All up and down the country, before the light was snuffed, turkeys, they get murdered, and cockerels, they got stuffed. Christmas cakes got marzipan'd and puddings they got steamed, mothers they got desperate and tired kiddies screamed. Hundred weights of Christmas cards went flying through the post with first-class postage stamps on those you had to flatter most. Within a million kitchens, mince pies was being made. On everyone's radio, White Christmas, it was played. Out in the frozen countryside, men crept round on their own, hacking off the holly what other folks had grown. Mistletoe on willow trees was by a man wrenched clear, so he could kiss his neighbour's wife he'd fancied all the year. And out upon the hillside, where the Christmas trees had stood, all was completely barren but for little stumps of wood. The little trees that flourished all the year were there no more, but in a million houses dropped their needles on the floor. And out of every cranny, cupboard, hiding place and nook, little bikes and kiddies' trikes were secretively took. Yards of wrapping paper was rustled round about and bikes were wheeled to bedrooms with the pedals sticking out. Rolled up in Christmas paper, the action men were tensed, all ready for the morning when their fighting life commenced, with tommy guns and daggers all clustered round about. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, the figures seemed to shout. The church was standing empty, the pub was standing packed, there came a yell, Noel, Noel, and glasses, they got cracked. From up above the fireplace, Christmas cards began to fall, and trodden on the floor said, Merry Christmas
0: to you all. I wonder if one of those cards was from Bruno. You don't know Bruno? Neither does Alan Corran. Barney. I have received
3: a Christmas card from a dog. When I first drew it from the envelope, I did not think it had been sent by a dog. I thought it had been sent by a human being who had bought a Christmas card with a dog on it. I didn't think it was much of a card, mind, because the photograph of the dog was not much of a photograph. The head of the dog was all right, but the far end of the dog was a bit out of focus. And the house beyond the far end of the dog was not only even more out of focus, it was wonky as well. This was not a photograph at all, it was a snapshot. None of which is to say that it mightn't have been a professional Christmas card. It's quite hard to tell these days with so many charities on the go. I've already received a fair few cards with ill-drawn blobs on the outside and on the inside information about dolphin shelters and acid rain and the like. And this canine item might very well have been one such. The dog looked relatively hale, but you never know, it could have had some psychiatric ailment. And as to the quality of the snapshot, perhaps it was the best that the miserable dog trust or whatever could afford. It would be irresponsible to chuck away good money on a professional photographer if the on-sec had an Instamatic. But when I opened the card, it just said, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from Bruno, in type, with, And his humans too! added in green ink. No signature, no address. I closed it and looked at the dog again. It was a total stranger. Nor could I identify the fuzzy house. It has a fuzzy car outside it, possibly a Volvo, but it's only a guess. This kind of thing has been getting worse over the years. When I was young, people sent one another cards with robins on. They were not in aid of robin relief... Nor was the bird a family pet, whose turn it was to do the cards that year. You opened them and they said, Merry Christmas to you and yours from Jim and Millie Nugent, Erz and Mine, Walnut Crescent, Uxbridge. You knew where you were with cards like that. But then, instead of the robin, the personalised card came bob-bob-bobbing along. This had the sender on the front, generally two adults you recognised, surrounded by several infants and a cat. As a shorthand method of keeping abreast of events in households you never visited, it served, I suppose, its purpose. As Christmases passed, you watched hair fall out, waists thicken, spectacles arrive, children lengthen, cats degenerate. Sometimes the family moved to the country and a horse joined them. Sometimes they emigrated and the Eiffel Tower or the Great Barrier Reef materialised behind them. But as Yates used to scribble gloomily on his own cards, things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. A Christmas would come along when you noticed a new baby sitting by the car and you thought, hello, they're a bit old for another kid. And then you looked at the picture again and it wasn't the same wife as last year. An extreme and deeply unsettling example of all this was the card we had a couple of years back from a man I didn't know at Oxford 30 years ago. He had married the ex-wife of a man I did know at Oxford. When she remarried, she was the one who carried on sending cards. These cards had her and her new husband on, plus a couple of new children standing next to her old ones. Then her second marriage broke up, and her ex-husband married again, but hung on apparently to the old Christmas card list. We now get an annual card from two people we don't know standing next to a lot of big, unfathomable children who could belong to almost anybody. And now we have an unfathomable dog. Why the hell Bruno couldn't have had his surname or address printed? Who can say? Might it be some kind of test? People with dogs, I find, expect you to recognise their pets. So it may well be that Bruno's humans have got him to sort out the wheat from the chaff... If they do not receive a card from me in return, my name will be Mud. I can think of only one solution to all this. I shall put a notice in the personal column of the Times to the effect that Mr Alan Corran wishes Bruno to know that he will not be sending any cards this year.
8: Why did Centre's little helper see the doctor?
2: Because, Alan he had low elf esteem.
8: <laughs> what do you call a line of men waiting for a haircut?
1: A barbecue, of course. Lots coming up, including a carol quiz, a bit of Kipling, a talking book review, and a Christmas ghost story.
0: But first, it's time for the Christmas edition of Growing Sense with Mike Lane and Vonya Carlton.
11: Hello. Hello.
12: Now, Mike, I know you're keen to get on with Christmas trees in a moment, mm-hmm. but firstly, can I ask about my pots at this time Ugh. of year? Um, they are frost-free, which obviously prevents them from cracking, mm-hmm. but the plants inside the pots aren't necessarily um, you know, going to stand up to much of a frost. Should I wrap some insulation or something around them, the uh, pots, I mean?
11: Yes, yeah. um, quite often people use newspaper. Just to wrap around oh the yeah. base of the plants, and even to cover the plants completely over over the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like your traditional geranium years ago, would have got taken up and then wrapped in newspaper, and then put into a shed to overwinter, oh. uh, and then taken back out sort of April April time, um, and re, repotted.
12: So they stay dormant. Yes. Yes. A yes. bit like fuchsias. A bit like fuchsias. Yes. Yep.
11: Yeah, yeah. The other thing you could do, obviously, to protect them from the frost, is obviously to stick them into a a shed or or bring them inside into your house. Yes.
12: Okay, thank you.
11: So then, let's let's think about Christmas.
12: Christmas trees, yeah. Yeah,
11: we all enjoy a good Christmas tree. But, I mean, pagans used fir branches to decorate their homes during their winter as it made them think of spring.
12: Oh, what, you mean from fir trees?
11: From fir trees, yeah. Oh, nice. And Christians use ever evergreen as a sign of everlasting life.
12: Yes, yes.
11: <laughs> uh, in the capital of uh, Latvia, in Riga, there was a plaque in eight different languages saying that they had the first tree in 1510. But do you know who who were the first people to bring uh, trees into their houses, no. into their homes? No, no. Okay. it was our our friends, the Germans, yes, since yes. since the 1600s. Mm. But quite often they used to hang their Christmas trees upside down.
12: Oh, wow. Like a big chandelier. Yeah. Uh,
11: Yeah, and today there's a a large choice of trees. But which is the right one for you?
12: Um, Something not too big. Yeah. And maybe a tree that isn't going to drop its needles too soon.
11: Yeah. I think it's important to think about... uh, where you're going to be ha- uh, having the tree in the house which is kind of very, very similar to when you plan a garden yes, because yes. Of the, you, you don't want a tree which then dominates the space. Yes,
12: and we usually end up moving furniture around to yeah. accommodate the tree which isn't great, is it? Because you know, suddenly you've got another piece of furniture in the way which you didn't expect to be there so that's then also a consideration, isn't it?
11: Yeah, as I'm getting older I think that smaller is better and it's also greener. A potted tree can be used year on year, you can prune it yourself and keep to your specification.
12: Oh, lovely. So whereabouts in the garden, though, would I put it? Somewhere shady?
11: You could put it somewhere shady or somewhere just on, maybe even on a patio.
12: Okay. Uh, How much would a a tree in a pot set me back, do you think, approximately?
11: Now, I have seen some uh, some of them around at the moment in Worcester, starting price from £20 for a nice three-foot tree. That's good which I think is a bargain mm. Yeah, there's also now some companies who will deliver your trees to your door, potted
12: Is this for rent?
11: This, this is for rent, you can actually rent a Christmas tree uh, at a set price um, this can take the hassle out of buying one mm. um, and also the dis- disposal afterwards because yes. you can actually set a date for when they want to drop it off yeah. and collect it yeah. and you can have the same tree um, what year on year, year? On year <laughs> if, if, if you're willing to pay for it uh, if you have a cut tree uh, i really would recommend giving it a good drink not one of those drinks
12: it's just... <laughs> not a sherry no not
11: a sherry <laughs> i recommend le- leaving it in in a bucket of water for at least a day before bringing bringing the tree inside i, I always I, I quite often think that you need to treat your christmas tree a little bit like a cut flower. Yes. yes. So, so give it plenty of water before you bring it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going to stick it into a pot, just keep it watered.
12: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it'll pick up the moisture it'll even from up the up soil. The,
11: yes. Yep. Uh, soil, when
12: soil. I was little, we only ever had trees that dropped their needles. We didn't have all these special fir trees now that, you know, you, yeah. you can keep for ages and they don't drop.
11: There are some really quite popular trees nowadays where the needles don't drop. The Balsam Fir is the, is the most fragrant tree of the lot, basically. They are grown here in the UK, but in very small volumes. Mm-hmm. So if you do find one, mm-hmm. you've probably got the best tree go, going from fragrance through to needle drop, but there's few of them in the UK. Another option of a tree you could be looking at is a Blue Spruce. Uh, it also smells great, uh, and it's easy to buy in the UK, it also holds its needles well uh, and is quite accessible for most garden centres. Lovely. Um,
12: How does it feel? Does it, it's quite sort of rough yeah, but soft. a
11: bit more rougher compared to something like the Norway spruce, uh, which is one of the most common trees in the UK. And it also tends to be the cheapest. Uh, the downside is the needles drop.
12: Oh, they do. They drop so quickly, don't they? Yes, mm. yeah, they do, especially
11: in, in the heat there's a new one which has come around in about the last 10 years called the Fraser Fir.
12: I've never heard of that.
11: Now, the Fraser Fir is from Canada and North America. Uh, it's the biggest saline tree over in the States and um, does not drop its needles at all. Uh, and it's got a lovely, soft, almost strokeable kind of oh, feel.
12: That sounds to, lovely.
11: To each branch and it also gives a great scent just fills the whole house with a a lovely smell
12: so what are we going to do next time we meet what are we going to talk about
11: oh i think there's so much we can talk about we could talk about maybe maybe we could look at that plot over there which you've covered and start planning to put a a, a, a i
12: would like a fruit tree a fruit tree yes and some bushes and some bushes
11: some gooseberry bushes
12: they're a bit prickly but i do like raspberries
11: okay great
12: i know they're a little bit prickly aren't they but yes raspberries maybe a espalier pear
11: yeah we could have a look is that That a good idea yeah anyway i'm getting cold stood out here okay (laughs) let's 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 go inside and uh, and uh, i'll see you after christmas
0: all right then mike thank you bye bye decorating a christmas tree effectively is a desirable skill which not all of us possess Carving a turkey is an even more desirable skill which we can learn. Jane. This is from my
9: great-grandma's cookery book, 1861, and the advice may well help over Christmas, although I doubt it without an electric carving knife. One of the most important acquisitions in the routine of daily life is the ability to carve well, and not only well, but elegantly. It is true that the modes now adopted of sending meats etc. to table are fast banishing the necessity for promiscuous carving from the richly served boards of the wealthy. But in the circles of middle life, where the refinements of cookery are not adopted, the utility of a skill in the use of a carving knife is sufficiently obvious." It must not be supposed that the necessity for this acquirement is confined to the heads of families alone. It is as important for the bachelor visitor to be familiar with the art as it is for the host himself. Indeed, he is singled out usually for the task of carving a side dish, which, happening to be poultry of some kind, becomes a task most embarrassing to him, if he should happen to be ignorant of the modus operandi of skilfully dissecting a fowl, He may, perchance, be on the right hand of the lady of the house, and at her request, very politely conveyed, he cannot refuse. He rises, therefore, to his task, as though one of the labours of Hercules had been suddenly imposed upon him. He first casts around him a nervous glance to ascertain whether anyone else is carving a fowl, in order to see where they insert their fork, at what part they commence, and how they go on. But it generally happens that he's not so fortunate as he desires, and therefore he's left to get through the operation as well as he can. He takes up his knife and fork desperately. He knows that a wing is good a slice of breast is dainty, and that a leg is a gentleman's portion. So he sticks his fork in at random and slashes at a wing, misses the joint and endeavours to cut through the bone. It is not an easy task. He mutters something about his knife not being sharp, essays a grin and faked jeu de mots at the expense of the fowl's age, and finding the bone will not sunder by fair means "'He puts out his strength, gets off the wing with a sudden dash "'which propels the mangled member off the dish and onto the cloth, "'sends the body of the fowl to the other end of the dish "'and with a jerk splashes a quantity of gravy "'over the rich dinner dress of the lady seated next to him, "'much to her chagrin at the injury to her robe "'and her contempt for the barbarous ignorance he has displayed. "'He has to make a thousand apologies for his stupidity,' which only serve to make his deficiency more apparent. He becomes heated, suffused with blushes and perspiration, continues hacking and mangling the fowl until he has disjointed the wings and legs, and then, alas, the body presents itself to him, a terror incognita. What to do with it? He's at a complete loss to imagine, but it must be carved. He has strength of wrist, and he crashes through it at a hazard of repeating the mishap he commenced with. His task over. He sits down, confused and uncomfortable, to find his efforts have caused the rejection of any portion of the fowl he has wrenched asunder by those who have witnessed his bungling attempt. He is disgusted with the fowl, himself, carving and everything else, loses all enjoyment for his dinner and during the remainder of the evening cannot recover his equilibrium. He will possibly too have the very questionable satisfaction of witnessing an accomplished carver dissect a fowl. He perceives with a species of wonder that he retains his seat, plants his fork in the bird, removes the legs and wings as if by magic and then follows merrythought and neck bones, then the breast. Away come the two sidesmen and the bird is dissected. All this, too, is accomplished without effort and an elegance of manner as surprising as captivating. The pieces carved look quite tempting, while there is no perceptible difference in the temperature of the carver. He is as cool and collected as ever and assists the portions he has carved with as much grace as he has displayed in carving the fowl. Ladies ought especially to make carving a study. At their own houses, they grace the table and should be enabled to perform the task allotted to them with sufficient skill to prevent remark, or the calling forth of eager proffers of assistance from good-natured visitors nearby who probably would not present any better claim to a neat performance. Carving presents no difficulties. It simply requires knowledge. All displays of exertion or violence are in very bad taste, for if not proved an evidence of the want of ability on the part of the carver, they present a very strong testimony of the toughness of a joint or the more than full age of a bird, in both cases, they should be avoided. The dish upon which the article to be carved is placed should be conveniently near to the carver, so that he has full control over it, for if far off, nothing can prevent an ungracefulness of appearance nor a difficulty in performing that which in its proper place could be achieved with ease.
1: While we're on the subject of festive food, I have here a recipe for Christmas cake. Now, I can't be sure if it was handed down by my mother or my grandmother, if indeed either. But if you follow it carefully, you'll find it's certainly very efficacious. Here's what you need. One cup of water, one teaspoon baking soda, one cup of sugar, one teaspoon salt, one cup of brown sugar, lemon juice... Four large eggs, lots of nuts, one bottle vodka, two cups of dried fruit. Sample the vodka to check quality. Take a large bowl. Check the vodka again. To be sure it is the highest quality, pour one level cup and drink. Repeat. Turn on the electric mixer. Beat one cup of butter in a large, fluffy bowl one teaspoon of sugar beat again at this point it's best to make sure the vodka is still okay try another cup just in case turn off the mixer break two legs and add to the bowl and chuck in the cup of dried fruit pick fruit off floor mix on the turner if the fruit gets stuck in the visors, try it loose with a screwdriver. Sample the vodka to check for consistency. Next, sift two cups of salt eh, or something. Who cares? Check the vodka. Now, shift the lemon juice and strain your nuts. Add one table. Add a spoon of sugar or something, whatever you can find. Grease the oven. And win the fridge. Turn the cake tin 360 degrees and try not to fall over. Don't forget, this is a beat off the turner. Finally, throw the bowl through the window. Finish the vodka. But fall into bed.
13: you sing at a snowman's birthday party?
8: Oh, freeze a jolly good fellow. <laughs>
13: freeze a jolly good fellow. And what do you get if you cross Santa with a duck? <laughs> I
8: think it would be a Christmas quacker.
13: Yeah.
0: Time for a special Christmas detective story by Colin Dexter. Phil.
6: He had knocked diffidently at Morse's North Oxford flat. Few had been invited into those book-lined, Wagner-haunted rooms, and even he, Sergeant Lewis, had never felt himself an over-welcome guest, even at Christmas time. Not that it sounded much like the season of goodwill as Morse waved Lewis inside and concluded his ill-tempered conversation with the bank manager. Look, if I keep a couple of hundred in my current account, that's my lookout. I'm not even asking for any interest on it. "'All I am asking is that you don't stick these bloody bank charges on when I go, "'what, once, twice a year, into the red? "'It's not that I'm mean with money.' "'Lewis's eyebrows ascended a centimetre. "'But if you charge me again, I want you to ring and tell me why.' "'Morse banged down the receiver and sat silent. "'You don't sound as if you've caught much of the Christmas spirit,' "'ventured Lewis. "'I don't like Christmas, never have. "'You staying in Oxford, sir? "'I'm going to decorate.' "'What?' Decorate the Christmas cake? Decorate the kitchen? I don't like Christmas cake. Never did. You sound more like Scrooge every minute, sir. And I shall read a Dickens novel. I always do over Christmas. Reread, rather. If I were just starting on Dickens, which one? I'd put Bleak House first, Little Dorrit second. The phone rang, and Morse's secretary at HQ informed him that he'd won a £50 gift token in a police charity raffle. And this time, Morse cradled a receiver with considerably better grace. Scrooge, did you say, Lewis? I'll have you know I bought five tickets, a quid apiece, in that charity raffle. I bought five tickets myself, sir. Morse smiled complacently. Let's be more charitable, Lewis. It's supporting these causes that's important, not winning. I'll be in the car, sir, said Lewis quietly. In truth, he was beginning to feel irritated. Morse's irascibility he could stomach, but he couldn't stick hearing much more about Morse's selfless generosity. Morse's old Jaguar was in dock again, too mean to buy a new one, his colleagues claimed. And it was Lewis's job that day to ferry the chief inspector around. Doubtless, too, if things went to form, to treat him to the odd pint or two which indeed appeared a fair probability since Morse had so managed things on that Tuesday morning that their arrival at the George would coincide with opening time. As they drove out past the railway station, Lewis told Morse what he'd managed to discover about the previous day's events. The patrons of the George had amassed £400 in aid of the Littlemore Charity for Mentally Handicapped Children, and this splendid total was to be presented to the charity's secretary at the end of the week, with a photographer promised from the Oxford Times to record the grand occasion. Mrs Michaels, the landlady, had been dropped off at the bank in Carfax by her husband at about 10.30am and had there exchanged a motley assemblage of coins and notes for 40 brand new tenors. After this, she bought several items, including grapes for a daughter just admitted to hospital, before catching a minibus home, where she arrived just after midday. The money, in a long white envelope, was in her shopping bag together with the morning's purchases. Her husband had not yet returned from the cash-and-carry stores, and, on re-entering the George via the saloon bar, Mrs Michaels had heard the telephone ringing. Thinking that it was probably the hospital, it was, she had dumped her bag on the bar counter and rushed to answer it. On her return, the envelope was gone. At the time of the theft, there had been about 30 people in the saloon bar, including the regular OAPs, the usual cohort of pool-playing unemployables and a pre-Christmas party from a local firm. And, yes, from the very beginning Lewis had known that the chances of recovering the money were virtually nil. Even so, the three perfunctory interviews that Morse conducted appeared to Lewis to be sadly unsatisfactory. After listening a while to the landlord's unilluminating testimony, Morse asked him why it had taken so long to conduct his business at the Cash and Carry. And although the explanation given seemed perfectly adequate, Morse's dismissal of this first witness had seemed almost offensively abrupt and no man could have been more quickly or effectively antagonised than the temporary barman on duty the previous morning, who refused to answer Mosk's brusque inquiry about the present state of his overdraft. What then of the attractive Auburn-haired Mrs Michaels? After a rather lopsided smile had introduced Morse to her regular, if slightly nicotine-stained teeth, that distressed lady had been unable to fight back her tears as she sought to explain to Morse why she'd insisted on some genuine notes for the photographer instead of a phonally magnified cheque. But wait, something dramatic had just happened to Morse. Lewis could see that, as if the light had suddenly shined upon a man that had hitherto sat in darkness – He, Morse, now asked, amazingly, whether by any chance the good lady possessed a pair of bright green, high-heeled leather shoes. And when she replied that, yes she did, Morse smiled serenely as though he had solved the secret of the universe and promptly summoned into the lounge bar not only the three he'd just interviewed, but all those now in the George who'd been drinking there the previous morning. As they waited, Morse asked for the serial numbers of the stolen notes, and Lewis passed over a scrap of paper on which some figures had been hastily scribbled in blotchy biro. For Christ's sake, man, hissed Morse, didn't they teach you to write at school? Lewis breathed heavily, counted to five, and then painstakingly rewrote the numbers on a virginal piece of paper seven seven three seven four one to seven seven three seven eight zero. At which numbers, Morse glanced cursorily before sticking the paper in his pocket and proceeding to address the George's regulars. He was virtually certain, he said, of who had stolen the money. What he was absolutely sure about was that exactly where that money was at that very moment. He had the serial numbers of the notes, but that was of no importance whatsoever now. The thief might well have been tempted to spend the money earlier, but not any more. And why not? because at this Christmas time that person no longer had the power to resist his better self. In that bar, stilled now and silent as the grave itself, the faces of Morse's audience seemed mesmerised and remained so as Morse gave his instructions that the notes should be replaced in their original envelope and returned, he cared not by what means, to Sergeant Lewis's office at Thames Valley Police Headquarters within the next 24 hours. As they drove back, Lewis could restrain his curiosity no longer. You really are confident that, of course... I never seem able to put the clues together myself, sir. Clues? What clues, Lewis? I didn't know we had any. Well, those shoes, for example. How do they fit in? Who said they fitted in anywhere? It's just that I used to know an auburn-haired beauty who had six, six, Lewis, pairs of bright green shoes. They suited her, she said. So they've got nothing to do with the case at all. Not as far as I know, muttered Morse. The next morning, a white envelope was delivered to Lewis's office, though no one at reception could recall when or whence it had arrived. Lewis immediately rang Morse to congratulate him on the happy outcome of the case. There's just one thing, sir. I kept that scrappy bit of paper with the serial numbers on it and these are brand new notes, all right, but they're not the same ones. Really? Morse sounded supremely unconcerned. You're not worried about it? Good Lord, no. You just get that money back to Ginger Nob at the George and tell her to settle for a jumbo cheque next time. Oh, and one other thing, Louis, I'm on leave. So no interruptions from anybody. Understand? Yes, sir, and um, happy Christmas, sir. "'And to you, old friend,' replied Morse quietly. "'The bank manager rang just before lunch that same day. "'It's about the £400 you withdrew yesterday, Inspector. "'I did promise to ring about any further bank charges.' "'I explained to the girl,' protested Morse, "'I needed the money quickly. "'Oh, it's perfectly all right, "'but you did say you'd call in this morning to transfer tomorrow.' I'm up a ladder with a paintbrush at the moment. Morse put down the receiver and again sank into the armchair with the crossword. But his mind was far away, and some of the words he himself had spoken kept echoing around his brain, something about one's better self. And he smiled, for he knew that this would be a Christmas he might enjoy almost as much as the children up at Littlemore, perhaps. He had solved so many mysteries in his life, Was he now, he wondered, beginning to glimpse the solution to the greatest mystery of them all?
0: Morse's Greatest Mystery by Colin Dexter Writer Robert Salter has come across what appears to be the second epistle from Joseph to the Corinthians, Barney. Dear
3: Corinthians, I acknowledge safe receipt of your epistle in response to my epistle, commonly known for reasons that escape me as the first epistle to the Corinthians, concerning the recent sojourn with my wife Mary in Bethlehem, or as your brochure puts it, the City of David. For a travel company of repute, both Mary and I find your explanations of the accommodation arrangements far from satisfactory. If we have to make the journey again, which I hope we do not in the light of what occurred once we were there, it will most certainly not be with Corinthians 18-30 to holidays. I offer the following response to your explanations. One, I have looked again at your brochure. I do not agree that the description of the inn includes the outhouses. The words travellers with cattle can expect the use of the stables surely refers to the cattle, not the guests. You may say that there are many worse off than ourselves, but unfortunately they all seem to have booked with your company. Two, you will have to take it from me that Mary giving birth to the Son of God was totally unexpected. And I can assure you that had I known that he was on the way, I would have given you the opportunity of bringing in your PR people. Three, I agree with your proposition that from every point of view the story has more appeal set as it is in a stable rather than in the twin bedded room with half board which we had booked. I also agree that it was much more convenient for the angel to make his way across the yard and into the stable rather than going through the residence lounge. Of course, I accept that the presence of the entire heavenly host praising God along the corridor on the second floor of the inn might have resulted in complaints from your other guests, but that does not address my main complaint. My wife Mary has little in common with shepherds. It was bad enough having to cope with livestock in the stable... But having to face a deputation of local sheep farmers who claimed they were tired of abiding in their fields at night was not our idea of local colour. Your decision to include them as an optional extra in next year's brochure does not impress. Four, I know you are denying you had anything to do with the couriers who arrived from the East bearing gifts, but I still maintain that I'd seen one of them in your office when I booked the trip. I do not wish to appear ungrateful, but at a time when I was struggling with a newly-born child, an exhausted wife, a group of fanatical shepherds, assorted livestock, an angel explaining my son was the everlasting father and the entire heavenly host, the arrival of three Corinthian holiday reps in fancy dress did little to help. And by the way, they could have left something a little more practical. Yours very truly, Joseph.
2: What's a a horse's favourite TV show?
8: (laughs) Neighbours. One has four legs but can't walk. A table. What (laughs) What do frogs wear on their feet?
2: Open-toed sandals.
13: I like carols. One of the things I like about carols is that you can hop mid-verse from the melody of one carol into the melody of a completely different carol and no one notices you've done it because many well-known carols use the same harmonies. Try humming I Saw Three Ships while getting a friend to hum the Holly and the Ivy or perhaps the First Noel at the same time. Try it. They fit. As it's Christmas, I thought it might be fun to have not a word search but a carol search. How many carols can you cram into a two-minute piece? I started with two of the three carols I just mentioned, the first Noel, and I saw three ships. Then we get on to the Holly and the Ivy, playing alongside Silent Night. There are twelve more carols in this medley, but every one of them has a different carol overlaid upon it in some way. We'll play it through once, then I'll go through it pointing each one out. Here we go. How many did you spot? Let's break it down. After the trumpets and flutes start off with I Saw Three Ships, the clarinets and oboe join in with the first Noel. That's followed by Silent Night and The Holly and the Ivy. We have two slightly lesser known carols, the Coventry Carol, and Peter Warlock's Bethlehem Down on the low strings. Next, over a repeat of the first Noel, you can hear O Little Town of Bethlehem. O Tannenbaum! Then we have three tunes at once. The Carol of the Bells on Glockenspiel and Celeste. With We Three Kings, while over it all, the Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Over We Wish You a Merry Christmas, the very haunting carol, O Holy Night. the big finish listen out for good king wenceslas combined with the repeat of o little town of bethlehem and the last couple of bars of ding dong merrily on high teemed with the last notes of o come all ye faithful with its secrets all revealed here it is again
1: Plush. Some folk have little time for carols on Christmas Day. Those who work in essential jobs that need skilled people round the clock throughout the year, even Christmas. Hannah Al-Othman, writing for Buzzfeed,
0: picked out some of the less obvious ones. Christmas will be spent with the 15 squirrel monkeys that zookeeper Agnes Kiss looks after at London Zoo. Christmas Day is the only day of the year that the zoo is shut to visitors so she will have the monkeys all to herself or, more accurately, they will be able to command her full attention. They still need to be cleaned, they still need to eat, she says. For monkeys, just like a lot of people, Christmas is an opportunity to spend some proper quality time with family without distractions, Kiss says. I think they enjoy that actually, their one special day. The monkeys receive Christmas presents, parcels full of nuts to rip open, which are part of the seasonal changes keepers make to their habitat to keep them stimulated. They're very clever, very intelligent, Kiss says. They love new things. Captain Noel Beckett is a ship pilot at the port of Southampton. Shipping
3: doesn't stop for Christmas Day, he says, because it's a worldwide thing. Although we get fewer ships on Christmas Day, we do get them, especially tankers. As a ship pilot or maritime pilot, his job is to guide vessels through dangerous waters and bring them into the harbour, ensuring the safety of the ship, protecting the environment and speeding up the process to save shipping firms money. We're all master mariners, says Beckett. We went to sea when we were 16 normally and most of us have sailed as captains. Christmas Day is usually quieter because ship owners do their best to get the ships in before Christmas, he says. Beckett, who's been doing the job for 18 years, says that it takes five or six years to train as a ship pilot and each knows the waters around their port like nobody else. Although a captain always retains control of their ship, Beckett and his colleagues use their back-of-the-hand knowledge of Southampton's port to help them bring their vessels in safely, typically meeting them in deep waters just south of the Isle of Wight and guiding them the rest of the way. A pilot shift will start at 8.30am on Christmas Day and last for 24 hours. There are several pilots on the roster for each shift and they'll have no idea whether or not they will have to work. There are about nine of us working every day. The first pilot could be called out from 8.30am onwards. You might not work at all. Or you might work at 3am on Boxing Day morning. You don't actually know when you'll get called out. You have to be sober on Christmas Eve because you have to be ready to be called out at any time on Christmas Day. After a 24-hour shift, ship pilots will then have 48 hours off. What our family has always done, Beckett adds, is if I'm working on Christmas Day, we'll nominate another day to be Christmas and postpone the celebrations until then.
7: I'm on standby on the 24th, says Andrea Brotsonikova, First Officer at Norwegian Airways. For me, that is Christmas Day, actually, I'm from Slovakia and that's the most important day for me. She does not know whether or not she'll have to fly. It will depend on what happens on the day. Even if you're on standby, you need to be on the phone, she explains. I'll have my phone with me all the time and be within 90 minutes so that I can get to work on time if something happens. It could depend on something like a diversion, the weather conditions. There are other crews we may have to cover. If she is called into work, Britsonikova says her day will be pretty much like any other. It's a normal day, she says. Nothing changes. It's not only us working, the airport staff are too. The airport is decorated, the staff wish you Merry Christmas, the passengers wish you Merry Christmas. It's always a little bit special, working Christmas. A normal day for a first officer, Britsonikova explains, could start early or finish late, depending on her roster – and may involve up to four flights. I normally come to work one and a half hours before the flight. I check the flight plans on the way to the airport. Once Britsonikova arrives at Gatwick Airport, she joins up with the captain and the crew. We go through security and then go to the aeroplane and prepare the aeroplane. We can do up to four flights a day depending on the length of the flights. That's what our day looks like. We then get three or four days off after. It's not a standard weekend. We get a longer weekend to recover. And if she does get called into work, Kova says, she thinks it will still be a good day. We have great crews, she says, and we have a really good atmosphere on the flight, so I'm sure we'll also have good fun if I'm working. I love
4: Christmas, says Sophie Yeomans, a weather forecaster at the Met office who will be working on the day. Her job involves briefing the media so that broadcasters and news websites can provide travel advice and declare whether we will officially have a white Christmas. Her 12-hour shift on Christmas Day starts at 7.30am. First, she will get a handover from colleagues who have been working the night shift so that they can get home and get a few hours sleep and then celebrate with their family. The shift work means that some end up sleeping in the daytime. One year my two night shifts fell over Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and I had to sleep all through Christmas. That was quite odd. Yeoman says, Rather than being upset about being at work, we're all in good spirits, we all love the job and there's quite a jovial atmosphere. Everyone's wearing Christmas jumpers. Her family have an additional celebration with her a few days before. We give each other Christmas presents and it feels like Christmas Day, she says. It's more in your mind than the actual day itself. You get to see your family and have time together, and that's the important thing. While many people will be watching the skies hoping for a white Christmas, forecasters usually have an idea how likely that is around a week in advance. The definition that the Met Office uses to define a white Christmas is for one snowflake to be observed falling in the 24 hours of the 25th of December somewhere in the UK. So what are the chances? We're in Exeter... So it's not often we get snow down here, she says. But Yeomans and her colleagues won't be putting any bets on. The bookies don't allow us to because we're the experts, she says.
1: Given the chance, Alan Corran would have bet on a dull grey Christmas, I expect. Barney.
3: Boxing noon and Hampstead Heath resembles nothing so much as the gale-scattered covers of all those comic annuals ripped yester morn from their urgent stockings. So many bright new Mickey Mouse gloves, so many bright new Rupert Bear scarves, so many bright new Garfield earmuffs and Kermit boots and Peanuts pullovers. The world, new laminated, is crying, Hello, chums, cavorting gaily in the drizzled gloom. All this iridescent giftery on adult and child alike seems to bespeak not so much Christmas as some medieval haberdashery fair upon which the city's cordwainers and hosiers and mercers and drapers and hatters have descended to propitiate their diverse tutelary gods and flog their latest lines. It's also cartoon jolly that I do not immediately notice that something is missing – What makes me finally notice is the singularly poignant sight of a small boy sledding down the sodden East Heath slope towards the Vale of Health. He has new yellow moon boots on and a new Snoopy flying helmet. He has a new sled. He could be on the cover of the Beano Annual, were it not for the one thing he does not have. He does not have snow. Poor little beggar. He's making a valiant fist of it, shoving himself off from just beneath me, lurching down the wet grass, slaloming the bushes with expert toe and mitten, bumping to a halt after a dozen yards, then struggling up again, his mud-caked sled trailing erratically behind him on its sodden string. Had he snow, he would not stop at all. He'd hurtle on, shrieking joyously, scattering the pirouetting skaters on Hampstead Pond and fetch up breathless in gospel oak. Because if he had snow, there would be skaters on Hampstead Pond today rather than the goose-bumped madmen flaunting their traditional braggadocio in the unfrozen ooze. Maybe in his head he has it. The imagination at seven is rich. Maybe he goes down the hill with six huskies in front and a pack of wolves behind. Maybe the unflagging effort is all about getting to Gospel Oak before Amundsen. My point, I have decided, is that he shouldn't have to. He's forced to imagine only because he's forced to compensate for unnecessary disappointment. He should not have been led to expect snow... He should not have torn open his bedroom curtains immediately after tearing open his sled wrappings to have his heart sunk by only drizzle, specking the panes. For two months now, cotton wool has been his promissory note. He stared through it at frosted toys while Muzak jingles sleigh bells at him. Tempted inside, he sat on Santa's snow-booted knee and heard how reindeer struggled through blizzards on behalf of good little boys. All his weekly reading has featured snow-capped mastheads. All the stuff within has occupied itself with snowball fights, thin ice, risible snowmen, and mad dogs happily frozen suddenly solid in the act of going for a newsboy's shin. Everything he's watched on television has ostensibly taken place in Arctic conditions, and all anyone has talked about has been the prospect of the white Christmas of which he's been encouraged to dream. No chance, we've not had a white Yule in 20 years, and the odds on our warming globe ever offering one must be incalculably long. This isn't Lapland. Is it not time to chuck this damaging delusion in? What it does here at Christmas is rain. We should make this a meteorological virtue. Let's have a British Santa in cheery yellow oilskins and sou'wester, ho-hoing through the drizzle in a dory tugged by six big cod. Let fake raindrops trickle down our shop windows from autumn on. Let our cards show robins on floating logs and coaches in flying spray. And each display, advertisement and grotto anticipate the joys of snug, dry firesides bonding happy families together against the cats and dogs beyond. Sing, I'm dreaming of a wet Christmas, Cliff, and let's be done with it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) With not a snowflake in sight, the weather at Manhood End in West Sussex is pretty gruesome too, in this poem by Rudyard Kipling. Phil.
6: Eddie, priest of St Wilfred in the chapel at Manhood End, ordered a midnight service for such as cared to attend. But the Saxons were keeping Christmas, and the night was stormy as well. Nobody came to the service, though Eddie rang the bell. Wicked weather for walking, said Eddie of manhood end, but I must go on with the service for such as care to attend. The altar lamps were lighted, an old marsh donkey came, bold as a guest invited, and stared at the guttering flame. The storm beat on at the windows, the water splashed on the floor, and a wet, yoke-weary bullock pushed in through the open door. How do I know what is greatest? How do I know what is least? That is my father's business, said Eddie, Wilfrid's priest. But three are gathered together, listen to me and attend. I bring good news, my brethren, said Eddie of Manhood End. And he told the ox of a manger and a stall in Bethlehem, and he spoke to the ass of a rider that rode to Jerusalem. They steamed and dripped in the chancel, they listened and never stirred, while, just as though they were bishops, Eddy preached them the word. Till the gale blew off on the marches and the windows showed the day, and the ox and the ass together wheeled and cluttered away. And when the Saxons mocked him, said Eddy of manhood end, I dare not shut his chapel on such as care to attend.'
1: It's no coincidence that Kipling brings the ox and the ass into that poem, Eddie's Service, a clear reference to the traditional nativity scene. Ian Seralia wrote a simple little tale inspired by that scene inside the Bethlehem stable, The mare and the Simpleton.
10: They followed the star to Bethlehem. Bulo the baker, barleycorn the farmer, Old Darby and Joan, a small boy, Peter, and a simpleton, whose name was Innocent. Over the snowfields and the frozen, rutted lanes, they followed the star to Bethlehem. Innocent stood at the stable door and watched them enter. A flower stuck out of his yellow hair his mouth gaped open like a drawer that wouldn't shut. He beamed upon the child, where he lay among the oxen, in swaddling clothes in the hay, his blue eyes shining steady as the star overhead. Beside him, old Joseph and Mary, his mother, smiling. Innocent was delighted. They brought gifts with them. Bulo, some fresh, crusty loaves, warm from the baking, which he laid at the feet of the infant Jesus, kneeling in all humility. Innocent was delighted. Barleycorn brought two baskets, one with a dozen eggs, the other with two chickens, which he laid at the feet of the infant Jesus kneeling in all humility. Innocent was delighted. Darby and Joan brought apples and pears from their garden, wrapped in her apron and stuffed in the pockets of his trousers. The little boy, a pot of geraniums, he'd grown them himself. And they laid them at the feet of the infant Jesus... Kneeling in all humility, Innocent was delighted. The mayor rolled up in his coach with a jingle of bells and a great to-do. He stepped out with a flourish and fell flat on his face in the snow. His footmen picked him up and opened his splendid crimson umbrella. Then he strutted to the door, while the white flakes floated down and covered it with spots. He was proud of his umbrella, and didn't mean to give it away. Shaking the snow off onto the stable floor, the mare peered down at the child, where he lay among the oxen in swaddling clothes in the hay, his blue eyes shining steady as the star overhead, beside him old Joseph and Mary, his mother, smiling. Innocent was puzzled. And the mayor said, "'On this important occasion, "'each must take a share in the general thanksgiving. "'Hence the humble gifts,' "'the very humble gifts which I see before me. "'My own contribution is something special, a speech. "'I made it up myself, and I'm sure you'll all like it. "'Pray silence for the mayor.' "'Moo, moo,' said the oxen. "'My fellow citizens,' The happy event I refer to, in which we all rejoice, has caused a considerable stir in the parish. In the whole world, said a voice, who spoke. Could it be innocent, always so shy, timid as a butterfly, frightened as a sparrow with a broken wing? Yes, it was he. Now God had made him bold. I fear I must start again, said the mayor. My fellow citizens, in the name of the people of this parish, I am proud to welcome one who promises so well. He is the son of heaven, said Innocent. The mayor took no notice. I prophesy a fine future for him. Almost, you might say, spectacular. He'll do us all credit. At the same time, I salute in particular the child's mother. The poor woman who, she's not poor, but the richest, most radiant of mothers. Simpleton! How dare you interrupt, snapped the mayor. But God, who loves the humble, heard him not. He made him listen, giving innocent the words. Mr. Mayor, you don't understand. This birth is no local event. The child is Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. A stable is his place and poverty his dwelling place. Yet he's come to save the world. No speech is worthy of him. Tush, said the mayor. I took a lot of trouble. It's a rare and precious gift, my speech. And now I can't get a word in edgeways. Rare and precious, did you say? Hear what the child has brought to us. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, oh, truly rare and precious gift. Peace on earth, said the neighbours, goodwill toward men, oh, truly rare and precious gift. They knelt in humility, in gratitude to the child who lay among the oxen in swaddling clothes in the hay, his blue eyes shining steady as the star overhead. Beside him, old Joseph and Mary, his mother, smiling. The mare was silent. God gave the simpleton no more to say. Now, like a frightened bird over the snowfields and the frozen, rutted lanes, he Fluttered away. Always, as before, a flower stuck out of his yellow hair, his mouth gaped open like a drawer that wouldn't shut. He never spoke out like that again. As for the mayor, he didn't finish his speech. He called for his coach and drove off, frowning, much troubled. For a little while, he thought of what the simpleton had said. But he soon forgot all about it. Having important business to attend to in town.
13: What's the most popular wine at Christmas?
8: I don't like sprouts. Is that an answer? It really is a Christmas cracker joke, isn't it? Okay, I'm going to get my own back now. What do you call a penguin in the Sahara Desert? Lost?
0: Earlier, we heard a school nativity story from Gervais Finn. In addition to his seemingly endless supply of nativity stories, he writes poems too. Christine. "'Oh, miss, I don't want to be Joseph.
4: "'Oh, miss, I don't want to be him "'with a cloak of bright red and a towel on me head "'and a cotton wool beard on me chin. "'Oh, miss, please don't make me a shepherd. "'I just won't be able to sleep. "'I'll go weak at the knees and wool makes me sneeze "'and I really am frightened of sheep. "'Oh, miss, I just can't be the landlord "'who says there's no room at the inn.' I'll get enough right when it comes to the night, and I know that I'll let Mary in. Oh, miss, you're not serious. An angel? Can't Peter take that part instead? I look such a clown in a white silky gown and a halo stuck up on me head. Oh, miss, I'm not being a camel, or a cow, or an ox, or an ass. I look quite absurd, and I won't say a word, and all of the audience will laugh. Oh, miss, I'd rather not be a wise man who brings precious gifts from afar. But the part right for me, and I hope you'll agree, in this play, can I be the star?
10: I think I'm the only person here who has actually met Gervase Finn, and actually, I got to know him quite well. Gervais Finn is an educational one on his own, that's for sure. After teaching English in a range of schools, he became a senior school inspector for the North Yorkshire Education Department. It was in his capacity as a school inspector that I met him, as, when I was head of English at what will always, I think, be known locally in Worcester as The Blind College... He was our first Ofsted inspector. He was endlessly encouraging, but also sharp as a tack about what was expected of us in teaching English, particularly to visually impaired students. He became a good friend to my department and to the school. Gervais told me his daughter was visually impaired, and he certainly spoke with awareness and sensitivity on the dedication needed in education for children with special educational needs. He has a unique understanding and a genuine love of children, and although I suspect a few of his stories may have something of an apocryphal element, he has the sort of rapport with children which has provided him with a fund of material which can hold an audience spellbound, swinging from laughter to tears in a nanosecond. At one Yorkshire primary school, the nativity play was a stellar event, and speaking parts were greatly coveted by the children. Shortly before one year's production, the lad playing Joseph, a prime part, had somehow blotted his copybook rather spectacularly and received the worst punishment of all, demotion to the part of the innkeeper. Clearly, resentment grew within him and his thoughts turned to sabotage. On the night of the play... Mary and the new Joseph approached the door of the inn and knocked. The door flew open, revealing mine host, and Joseph, keeping to the script, made the time-honoured request. "'We've travelled for days. We're so tired, and my wife's gonna have a baby.' But there's no room anywhere. Please, can we stay here? The answer was not the requisite one. Yes, come in, come in. There's plenty of room.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I suspect most people can remember at least something of their school nativity plays, though some may prefer to forget them. Jane has plenty of Christmas memories not the least of which include cattle and a carpenter.
9: Well, the first one I can remember was when I was about ten years old and my brother around six years, scrambling around opening presents at about four in the morning. We've all done that, haven't we? My aunt and uncle and cousins coming on Boxing Day and a row ensuing in the kitchen as my dad and uncle had devoured the trifle my grandma had made. My first job in Lime Street in London, next door to Leadenhall Market. All decked up in green and gold decorations and turkeys hung outside all the butchers. I think they were having a competition for the largest turkey but it was always a good idea to wait till Christmas Eve and you could get a really big turkey for just a few pounds. The next problem was getting it home on the train. Next up... Christmas Day at the police station in Hyde Park. My station was Gerald Road in Belgravia, but I often walked over to Hyde Park to feed the police horses. They had a better canteen as well. Christmas Day was spent in quite an old-fashioned way, where the Christmas meal was served to the policemen by the inspector or superintendent and, of course, me. Christmas Day in my first house, having just got married. Mum and Dad over for Christmas dinner. This was the first time I had cooked a Christmas dinner. To say it was not a success is being kind. My daughter's first Christmas, and as usual, with very small children, the boxes the presents came in were more fun than the presents themselves. My father, who was a carpenter before joining the police in the 1930s, had made my daughter a doll's house, complete with working lights and furniture. It's still in use at a friend's house, as she's got lots of grandchildren. Walking home through the village in the dark, after the midnight service, with just the stars for company. The Death Star Christmas. I expect we've all had one of those. Having obtained a Star Wars Death Star, a cardboard planet, at more than a little trouble... When Christmas morning arrived, my husband discovered it had to be put together. We left him to it. Hours later, it appeared, with a very disgruntled husband. The Christmas when Mum and Dad didn't make it to Christmas with us, due to snow. Christmas Day, when it was my turn to feed the cattle and bed them down. I'd wanted to farm, but settled for an agreement with a local farmer, where I bought the cattle and he supplied the grub and straw, and his wife and I looked after the girls. My daughter was press-ganged into helping with that one. The Christmas my father died, and we went away for Christmas. Not a good idea. Nothing open in Cornwall, and not a very comfortable hotel. Having recently moved house, I did not know I had a pump sewage system, and when did it decide to pack up? two days before Christmas. I was expecting the family, 12 of them on Boxing Day, 14 people and no working lose, not good. Christmas Eve saw the truck arrive to pump me out and an engineer to fix the pump with the proviso that it was replaced after Christmas. That was an expensive one. Christmas means pantomime. Well, it did... When I was at the London Palladium in Jack and the Beanstalk, Christmas day off, but two performances on Boxing Day to a very appreciative audience. Oh, another hidden talent no I was, I was um I was a singer in Jack and the Beanstalk. it was um Jimmy Tarburg Jimmy a singer. Tar- yeah, I was trained as a singer
0: and a policewoman. And an archaeologist. My
9: my friend says I've got the attention span of a gnat. (laughs) I'm easily diverted. Were you ever given roller skates for
0: Christmas? I can't stay upright on a pair of roller skates or anything else for that matter. (coughs) According to Gilbert Moore, writing in 1967, roller skating was something of a craze in Edwardian England. Yes, the new craze was the rage of the Christmas
1: season of 1909. By then, no self-respecting town was without one of the new roller rinks, and the Midlands, with its concentration of humanity, had more than most. Birmingham City Rink and Winter Gardens was situated near New Street Railway Station and what was described as the electric car routes. In its prospectus issued earlier that year, the rink anticipated an annual profit of £8,400. This was to be derived from 200 afternoon admissions and 800 evening admissions at one shilling each, and from refreshments, carnivals and tuition fees. From the success of the rink, its ambitions must have been more than realised. It was Mr. J.T. Cooper of the Birmingham Roller Skating Club who that new year won the one mile amateur championship in 3 minutes 45 seconds. The race was run at the neighbouring West Bromwich Rink before 500 spectators. They had not been deterred by the blizzards and gales, for the 18,000 square feet of floor space at the West Bromwich Rink was electrically heated, claiming to be the largest in the Midlands. At the same time, nearby Smethwick considered itself unchallenged, even though it had no heated floor. During the Christmas week, they held a grand sports night in aid of the Smethwick Poor Children's Treat and Boot Fund. For there were those who could not even afford boots that Christmas, let alone frivolous appendages with wheels. There seem to have been as many diversions on roller skates as at present there are on ice. Pirro shows, fancy dress parades and carnivals, stunts of all kinds with seesaws and barrels were performed on rollers during the mania and races were run against bicycles. Elaborate dance routines followed the regulations of the National Skating Association which directed the steps, timing and movement. But few rinks can have outshone the Lozelles and Erdington rink in the matter of showmanship, under the guidance of a handsome and distinguished young man, Mr A.T.C. Bridges. His experience included not only the managership of rinks in Vienna, Paris and Milan, but he was an actor of some success. The rink claimed that its staff was the most expert, civil and obliging one could contact. The rink itself, said the rink, was the best conducted in the Midlands. One's daughter could attend without fear of being insulted by undesirables. One's daughter could, however, be enticed to the rink by the looks and charms of Mr Bridges, as no doubt much of the public was. And this sense of theatre was a great asset to productions like the Pierrot and Pierrette Carnival at Christmas of 1909 and to the fancy dress ball held for the Chester Road Cricket and Hockey Club, which 2,000 spectators attended, 450 in costume. Aston also had a rink at the Lower Grounds, a general entertainment centre which once was host to Buffalo Bill and the Deadwood Stage. The proprietors of the rink called the attention of principals of educational establishments to the rink's invigorating exercise – but were apprehensive about the horseplay that went on in other parts of the lower grounds. A cautionary set of rules included, gentlemen without ladies should not trespass on the time or space set apart for ladies. No skater should stop on circuit except to assist a lady. No such problems burdened Worcester's Arboretum, an aristocrat of a rink where they skidded round in evening dress. Malvern's Rink had a carnival that Christmas, and Birmingham Spring Hill called its American rink the Rendezvous of the Elite. Another city rink was in Sparkbrook. Hansworth, then a borough, had a roller rink some years before the rage, and was well equipped to absorb the sudden onslaught. At Edgebaston Rink, a growing success, they skated to the music of a military band. Where wasn't there a rink? A shortage of turkeys there may have been that Christmas, but not of roller rinks. The music hall had made great strides that year, and the sixpenny hop was a tradition. But the rinking rage outfevered them both. The liberals and the radicals were beating their chests in readiness for the general election, but the electors were deaf to all but the song of the rollers. While governments still tinkered with thoughts of old-age pensions and labour exchanges, the public was getting its skates on. Perhaps it was all an unconscious breakaway from the frills and furbelows of Edwardiana, from its restrictive elegance on the one hand and repressive poverty on the other. Maybe it was that the exhilarating speed of the horseless carriage, prohibitive to most as a running cost of £2.10 shillings a week, could be best imitated on a pair of skates hired for a modest sixpence a night. What
13: is, <laughs> oh. what is an ig?
2: An Eskimo's home without a loo. What is an ig? An Eskimo's home without a loo. Igloo, I've got no
8: it, yes. Which <laughs> right. country has the largest appetite?
1: Hungary. <laughs>
0: If an Edwardian uncle could not run to a pair of roller skates for a Christmas present, he might well instead have given his nephew or niece that mainstay of gifts, a book, particularly in Scotland, where the books published by the local Blackie and Son were recommended as Ideal Christmas Presents by the Helensborough and Gerlock Times in 1908. If you fancy a good book this Christmas, check out our library of talking books here at Colin Chant's House. Phil Lee has been listening to an historical novel from our shelves, set shortly after the Napoleonic Wars.
6: Time for some swashbuckling adventure. And so the audio that I've chosen this time is Sharp's Devil, read by Sean Bean, who played Sharp in the TV series, from a book by Bernard Cornwall, abridged in three CDs which last about three and a half hours. It's set in the year 1820, and Richard Sharp has been living in Normandy since the Battle of Waterloo five years earlier. It is there that he is found by the Countess Louisa Vivar, who begs him to travel to Chile to discover what has happened to her husband, Blas Vivar. It is strongly rumoured that Blas has been killed by rebels, but Louisa does not believe it. Though he finished the war as a lieutenant colonel, Sharp dons his rifleman's uniform recruits his old regimental sergeant Harper from his Dublin bar and sets off across the Atlantic on the Spanish frigate the Espiritu Santo, captained by the mysterious Ardiles. The ship is carrying reinforcements for the Spanish armies, fighting rebels, we might say freedom fighters, in Chile. The Spanish decide to visit the island of St Helena on the way, for there, in a damp, depressing house called Longwood, guarded by hundreds of British soldiers... Is the exiled Napoleon Bonaparte. The meeting at Longwood is in itself well worth a listen. Sean Bean is a good reader, clear and well paced, who tends to modulate better, if anything, when voicing different characters than in ordinary narration. Take, for instance, this brief interchange between Sharp and Bautista, the senior Spanish officer in Chile.
14: General Bautista suddenly whirled on Sharp and pointed his finger. You were at Waterloo? Yes, sir. Why did Napoleon lose there? The question took Sharp somewhat by surprise, despite Markiners having warned him that the Captain-General was fascinated by Napoleon and his battles. Did Bautista see himself as a new Napoleon? Well, Bautista chivied Sharp. He underestimated the British infantry, Sharp said. And you, of course, were a British infantryman? Bautista asked in a sarcastic tone. The Captain General had walked close to Sharp and was staring at the Englishman with what seemed a genuine curiosity. Sharp was a tall man, but even so, he had to look up to meet the dark eyes of the Captain General. As the events are seen from Sharp's
6: perspective, though, he does give the tale real authenticity. Cornwell is very adept at conveying atmosphere, not just the smoke of battle, and the novel, the 22nd in the series, moves along smoothly. As ever, the historical ambience is exceptionally well done. I particularly liked the description of Sharp's first impressions of St Helena, the mule ride to Longwood, and the rounding of Cape Horn in an inevitable storm. We also get a convincing sense of inhabiting the Chile through which Sharp and Harper travel. While at Longwood, Sharp promises Napoleon that he will deliver a signed portrait of the Emperor to an American officer in Chile. Now, what could go wrong in carrying out such a simple request? Now listen on. To do so, let us know at Colin Chant's house and we will put the CD in your envelope as soon as it's available. In the meantime, whatever you're listening to, and however you're listening to it, I wish you an enjoyable and
0: rewarding time. A book for Christmas. And after Christmas, New Year. And with New Year come resolutions. For some, anyway, but not for my son Andrew, who offered us these thoughts. Every year, January comes round, and I have this overwhelming sensation of not being good enough. New Year's resolutions become a dumping ground for life's to-do-but-never-quite-actually-get-done list. Broadly, they all fit into the criteria of work harder get fitter, or be kinder. There's a reason why you see gym adverts everywhere in January. As if the cold weather and short evenings aren't bad enough, resolutions turn January and February into one big existential crisis. Futile attempts are made to get fledgling projects off the ground. However, by March, these new habits are often wavering, and by July, the distant memory. This cycle is inefficient and ineffectual. There is nothing wrong with making big life changes, but they should be considered and planned, and certainly not made on the back of feeling guilty at too many mince pies at Christmas, amongst other overindulgences. As the year passes, a healthier acceptance of one's lot takes over. The practical realities of holidays and sunshine suppress the earlier introspection around direction and purpose. The steady rhythm of life returns as you strike a balance between life's progression and experiences enjoyed in the here and now. Then autumn swings by and nature's cycle enters its regenerative phase. As the leaves fall from the trees, thoughts return to the year at hand, opportunities squandered, perhaps, achievements garnered, roads taken or not taken. We tot up, assess, and subconsciously prepare our score for the year, before casting it all aside until January, because there's Christmas to enjoy first. Christmas passes, a cocktail of late nights, indulgence and conviviality. We toast the year, celebrating the successes and drowning out the shortcomings. But so January returns again, and we emerge from our Christmas cocoon, sheepish at the prospect of what the new year will bring. The Christmas hangover merges with the hangover from last year's unmet expectations. So this year I will set no resolutions. I don't want that weight weighing heavy on those already tough, cold and dark days. I will instead set myself continuations. I will celebrate the things I'm already doing well and pledge to keep them going for the year ahead. There's always time to reflect and make changes, but this year, for me, January is not going to be that time.
1: There's a lot to be said for carrying on regardless, but in our very seasonal audio playhouse this month, some supernatural interference brings not just great change, but to two people, unexpected and very great rewards. We present Christmas Rose by John Stanbury.
15: Do you know how you can believe something all your life, nearly? Really think it's true? Like if your mum told you something when you was little, but then one day you suddenly find out that it's not true and that she was wrong. Your whole world sort of changes round and faces in the opposite direction. Now, that ain't necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes really good things can happen because of it. A couple of Christmases ago, my friend Joan come to have Christmas lunch with me at the flat. I met her off the 11.45. It was a bit late, but seeing as it was Christmas Day and all, we, we didn't make a fuss. She'd been watching a film the night before called Ghost, with um, oh, some bloke in it. I think I've seen it actually. Not my sort of thing, I told her. I mean, how can dead people communicate with anybody, eh? They can't talk, can they? They can't write you a letter, can they? Not after they died.
10: But ghosts, Margaret. What about
15: ghosts? What about ghosts? There ain't no such thing as ghosts. Have you seen one? Well, no. Has a ghost spoke to you ever? Or sent you a birthday card? No. Exactly. My mum used to say to me, don't you worry, little Peg, there's no such thing as ghosts. Tell you what, she said, if there is, when I'm dead, I'll come back and haunt you. Then you'll know for sure. Little Peg? Was that you? Peg? Yeah. Yeah, short for Margaret, didn't you know? Now, me mum was killed when I was 20. And she was. Imagine that. Huh? And has she appeared to me, even once in 40 years... No, of course she ain't. She's dead, Joan. And once you're dead, you're dead. Dotty, where are you, girl? Here she is. Plummy, where'd you pick that up? Whose flat have you spent the morning in? What is it? Dotty. She smells like a tart's boudoir. You don't smell no different to me. Oh, yes, yeah, surely. You don't normally smell like that. Just going to get my coat off. Put the kettle on, will you? Now then, Dotty. See what Auntie Jones got you. Salmon drops. There you go. Merry Christmas, girl. Oh, you don't smell bad, do you? What's she on about? Has that cat been in my bedroom? Dotty? You've been rubbing your perfume all over my sheets. What perfume? You just go in my bedroom and smell it. I'll have to wash all the bedding and have the window open all night. It's that strong. I can't smell it in here. Well, it's on her and now it's on my bed. Go and smell. OK. I'll pour. I'll go. I can't smell anything in here. What I don't understand is where she's got it from. If she's not been out... What sort of smell is it? What do you mean? Well, is it a nice smell or a nasty smell? Oh, it's all right. But what's it smell of? I don't know. Surely you can smell it. I've never smelt it before. Mixture of women's perfume and men's aftershave and, and something else. Soapy. Sort of lemony. M- musky rose. With carbolic. Ooh, sounds horrible. no. You'd like it if you could smell it. You really can't. Something wrong with your nose then. Yeah. You starting a cold perhaps? It didn't go away, the smell. It got stronger. Got everywhere. Everywhere in the flat. I went round next door. See if they'd had it. But they hadn't nor the other side. Nobody on my floor had it. I even asked down below, and on the floor above. Met people I've never seen before. It's like that in a block. You live a few feet away from an old family and never set eyes on them. Funny. But they hadn't smelled the smell. I was beginning to think it was me, in me head like. Like I was smelling things. You're smelling things, little Peg. My friend Joan said. I cleaned the flat from top to bottom. Washed the curtains, shampooed the carpets. Took forever to dry. But that smell will not go. Yeah, like a musky rose, but sort of citrusy, you know. And that soapy scent mixed in with it. I was sure it must have been on me clothes and people would look at me thinking, I don't know what, but they didn't. No one seemed to notice, only me. Funny thing is, it had a kind of familiarity to it. Yeah, I know, after six months of it, it would be familiar. That ain't what I mean. Evocative, that's it. Kinda took me back, like, to when I was a little girl. Bath time with me mum. (laughs) Tin bath by the fire. Nice feelings, you know. Happy. But with a sense of loss, somehow. And, I don't know, sadness as well. Having the smell of roses in the flat—never had roses. I thought when Edgar passed away I might move, but I didn't. We always wanted to have somewhere with a garden, but we could only afford the flat. I grew a few plants on the window sill, you know, but nothing fancy. No roses. I'd a quite liked a rose. Remind me of me mum. Her name was Rose. But you can't grow roses in a flat, can you? I planted a rose on Edgar's grave, but the warden said that weren't allowed, only pots. So he's got a pot instead with some cut roses in it. Yeah, I would have loved a big garden. Don't suppose I'll ever get one now. I was going down the cemetery, I I do still, and I'd gone a different way from usual, calling in at the florist near them big Georgian houses with the long front gardens and the fancy gates, and I smelled that smell. Now, outside the flat, I never smell it, never have. But as I passed number 27, it had a name carved on the gatepost, Russelliana, it said, Anyway, as I walked past it, I got this overpowering scent of roses and lemons and soap. There was a bloke about my age in the garden pulling weeds. Morning, I said. He looked up. Excuse me, I said. I couldn't help admiring that smell from your garden. Rose, is it? I'm sorry? Don't tell me you can't smell it, neither. Scent from your roses... I can smell them from here. What variety
16: is it? Oh, well, it it could be anything we've... um, Well, I've got quite a few. Septadile over there. Um, Desdemona, perhaps, by the Aster. That's a very fragrant one. Could it be that? Smells sort of lemony. Oh, that'll be the Paul's Lemon Pillar. And soapy, you know.
15: A bit like carbolic, know what I mean? Uh, I'm sorry, that wasn't meant to be rude.
16: It's not a bad smell, carbolic. I I didn't mean to offend. No, no, no offence. I was just a bit surprised. I I do have one, actually, a bit like that. It's pretty unusual. It's in the back garden. I'm surprised you could smell it from the road. I'm a bit sensitive to that smell. What colour is it? Uh, It's a deep purple. Would you like to see it? No, 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 don't trouble yourself. Oh, it's no trouble. We don't get to share our rose collection with many people these days. Come in round the back, I'll show you. My friend Joan would have died. You can't just walk into a stranger's
15: house like that. He could be a murderer, she'd have said. But I went anyway, and he wasn't a murderer. But he had an enormous
16: garden and a lot of roses. Ah, well, it's not me, it's my father, was my father... He was the one for roses. Grew roses all his life, I think. Had a passion. Here we are. Charisma rose. Well, that was the smell, all right. Unmistakable.
15: Exactly the smell what had been stuck in my flat ever since Christmas.
16: Not Christmas. Charisma. What people call a Christmas rose isn't actually a rose at all, and they have hardly any scent. No, No, this one's got plenty. You ain't kidding. He used to say my mother had charisma. Bit of a daredevil, apparently. Perhaps he named it after her. Funny you should mention a note of carbolic in its fragrance, though. I've never thought of it like that. But you're right. Reminds you of your childhood, doesn't it? Well, it does me. Tin bath in front of the fire, carbolic soap, loofah and all that. (laughs) He bred this one himself. It was like his life's work. Spent years crossing it with other roses until he finally got this. This is a rose, a real rose, and it has bags of personality. Intense colour, deep, powerful fragrance, and it flowers throughout the winter, including Christmas. I suppose it is like a Christmas rose in that respect. There's another of his creations there, look. Much more delicate, though. The pink one, see? Yeah. He named that one after his daughter, he said. My sister. Her name was Margaret, and they called her Little Peg. So that's what that rose is called, Little Peg. <laughs> he grew that one 30 or more. I say, I say, are you all right? Do you want to sit down? Her name's Jared, by the way. It's Hebrew, apparently, for rose. Ha, <laughs> ha. Mum and Dad named us both after plants, me and my sister. Margaret is a variant of Marguerite, you know, the Daisy. My mother's name was Rose. Flowers and plants.
15: He prattled land, on, I but I couldn't concentrate on most of it. Boy, I'd suddenly found that I had a lot to right, think
16: about. What it meant.
15: Have you yeah. always lived
16: here? Yeah, pretty much. My mother left us when I was about two. She kept my sister, and I stayed with Dad. We weren't well off, but his printing business picked up in the early 50s and he was able to buy this house after a few years. Been here ever Uh, since. And
15: where are they now? Your mum and your sister?
16: Dad told me they had died, both of them. Some sort of accident. We never spoke about it, but we've been okay. Dad and I, living here, just the two of us. Work keeps me busy.
15: And your dad...
16: Oh, um, Dad died just a few months ago, Christmas Day.
15: Oh, I'm sorry.
16: Yes, well, he was getting on.
15: I thought back to when Joan come to have Christmas lunch with me at the flat. Jared, when did he... If you don't mind my asking,
16: hmm.
15: what time of day did your Dad pass?
16: Time? Er... Uh, just before 12, lunch time. Why?
15: Well, the first time I... I've smelt your Christmas rose before.
16: Oh, no, I don't think so. You, you couldn't have smelt it anywhere other than here in this garden. It's the only one of its kind. It's a pretty unique smell. It's a completely unique rose. There are no others. I know.
15: It were Christmas Day, just before lunch, that that rosy lemon musky soap smell started up in my flat. The same time as Jared's dad passed away. He didn't ask you out, did he? Did he? Margaret? I, I, I said I couldn't. Did you say why? Uh, no. You told him your name? I, I suppose so. Margaret? Or little Peg? I don't remember. I was a bit dazed. I think you should go and see him again. Take some family photos with you. So I did. And now I've got a big garden after all. Lots of roses. And we're developing a new breed, too. I said to Jared, We should name it after him this time, if it works out. Like he said, it's Hebrew. It means rose. It'll be like a little memorial to our mum.
0: In Christmas Rose by John Stanbury, you heard Pauline Beale as Margaret, Moira Lowe as Joan, and Martin Bourne as Jared. Christmas Rose was produced and directed by John Plush. And that's about it for this year. We hope you've
1: enjoyed our offerings through 2021 and we look forward to doing it all again in 2022.
0: But before we leave you, here's a quick word from Roger Knight, the chairman of the Worcester Talking Newspaper. Christmas time again.
3: It always amazes me that time passes so quickly. But what is a little worrying is that as one becomes older time seems to pass even more quickly, although having said that, the periods of lockdown and other Covid precautions and restrictions did seem endless. These past two years have been pretty dreadful and regrettably we're not yet free of this dreadful virus. Production of our talking newspaper memory sticks with the recordings of the weekly news has been very difficult and had it not been for the exceptional dedication of our team of volunteers production would have stopped completely for quite a long period of time. We are all greatly indebted to you. May I also wish our listeners a very happy Christmas and a Covid-free New Year. Best wishes.
1: So with thanks as always to Carol Hartle for administration and to David and Sylvia Day for copying and to all the other volunteers,
0: from Barry Hurd and his helpers, from John, Catherine, Phil, and Jane, from Christine, Barney, and Evelyn, from me, Pippa Curtis, and from me, Stephen Buckley. It's goodbye from all of us. And of course, Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! So, what's the answer to the chimney riddle, Barry? What can go up a chimney down, but cannot go down a chimney up?
2: An umbrella. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, oh, that's sort of that. Yeah,
5: that's very clever. <laughs>